We got a new series today, starting the book of Daniel. You guys excited? Yes? Good. I hope so. Um, this has been a, 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 an interesting week for me, getting ready for this. Um, I don't know how many of you recall, but uh, back when we started the book of Romans, uh, more than 18 months ago, I stood before you on the very first message and I explained to you of the week that I had had prior in my home with my family. And I had explained to you how we had gone through incredible sickness, incredible uh, distress and turmoil, sleepless nights. Um, the list went on and on. The, the week prior to my beginning the book of Romans, some almost two years ago, was an unbelievable week for my family. And wouldn't you believe it, uh, the last 48 hours in my home leading up to today has been filled with sickness, with, with my children, have fevers. Um, they've been very, very sick, very ill. My wife's been ill. The last two nights, my family have had sleepless nights like you wouldn't believe, and my kids normally sleep like babies. And I wonder, um, as I wondered two years ago when we began Romans, I wonder aloud, is this not the enemy attacking me right before we begin something great. Do you believe that? I do. Some of us might look at that and go, well, that's just happenstance. You know what? I don't, I don't find what, ha- what happened in my home in the last 48 hours happenstance. I don't. Because I know with what intensity I've begun my studies in this book. And I know with what passion I have coming into it. And I know that the enemy would like nothing more than to crush what we're about to do. Than to squelch it. Than to quench it. Than to take its power away. And so today, I want to say before all of you that we are going to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ, upon the power of the Spirit, as we begin this study because we know the enemy is against us. We look all around and there is spiritual warfare. And it was most intense in my home the last two days. But I know that our God is greater. Amen? So, let's get ready for a great series, I believe, in the book of Daniel. The title of my message today, The History and Significance of the Book of Daniel. We're going to be in chapter 1 today. We're only going to go through the first few verses today. But let me begin with a word of prayer and ask God to truly bless and protect and give us wisdom as we go through this book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to this moment as a church expectant from You. We expect, Lord, that we will hear from You. That we will learn from You. We expect, God, that You will show us great things. And God, I know that, uh, that You have been pressing upon my heart to preach and teach in this book. Um, Father, as I've read through it, You know the, uh, the passion that I have for this book. How much I see in Daniel a picture of what we are looking at in our own day and age. God, we need the courage of a Daniel today. We need the influence of a Daniel today. We need to hear from You as Daniel heard from You centuries ago. God, I pray that You would bind the enemy from this study. I pray that You would 
not allow the adversary to creep into our hearts, to, to distract our eyes, but that we would focus, that Your Spirit would help us focus on everything that You would have for us in this time in Your Word. I pray that You'd bless this study, bless our opening look at this great and mighty book. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. The year was 605 B.C. A man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar was prowling throughout the ancient Near East. Nebuchadnezzar was the son of King Nabopolassar of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar was coming from Babylon up to the top of the Fertile Crescent just to the northeast of Jerusalem. And there in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, then the general, the highest general, he wasn't king yet, he met the nations of Assyria and Egypt, two of the greatest nations in the history of the world. Assyria, in years prior, had decimated all of the ancient Near East. They had ruined the northern kingdom of Israel. And Egypt had allied herself just for a time with the nation of Assyria to come up against this new world power in Babylon. They met at the north end of the Fertile Crescent in the ancient Near East, and there King Nebuch General Nebuchadnezzar defeated the armies of both Assyria and Egypt in one fell swoop. Not long after, his father, Nabopolassar, died and Nebuchadnezzar became king of the Babylonian Empire. From there, he continued south where he came into a land called Israel and encountered the southern tribe of Judah. By that day, the northern kingdom had already been decimated by Assyria and now all that was left was the southern tribe of Judah. Jehoiakim, was the king in Judah. And he met Nebuchadnezzar's army just outside of Jerusalem. The Jews were unable to defend themselves against Babylon's mighty power. And Nebuchadnezzar attacked and conquered Jerusalem with ease, beginning the first of three deportations of the Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon. We pick up the story in Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Daniel writes, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim of Judah, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of God, the temple, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. About seven years after the first deportation of the Jews from Jerusalem to Babylon, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, became the puppet king of Judah. But he too, just like his father, fell out of favor with King Nebuchadnezzar. And once again, Babylon came 
and deported the Jews. They besieged Jerusalem a second time, this time about seven years after the first siege. And Jehoiachin was hooked through his lips and dragged to Babylon with thousands of other Jews. A second deportation, a second siege of Jerusalem. Among those who went in that second siege, among those who were taken captive to Babylon, was a young man by the name of Ezekiel. You know him in your Bible as the prophet Ezekiel. And he went with his fellow countrymen into the land of Babylon and prophesied there. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar in the late 6th century B.C. appointed a man by the name of Mathaniah, who Zebuchadnezzar called Zedekiah, to be the final puppet king of the southern kingdom of Judah. But within a decade, Zedekiah had vainly attempted to rebel against Babylon. And this is what happened. We read about it in 2 Kings 25. This is the last the last stand of the Jews before Nebuchadnezzar in about 586 B.C. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food, no food for the people of the land. Let's continue. Actually, hold it right there. The, the, the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army once again besieges the city. They start attacking Jerusalem for the third and it's going to be the final time. And the famine inside Jerusalem was so severe, so severe, that there was no more food left in the city gates. Uh, you know, various scholars over the years have tried to dispute aspects of these kinds of sieges. Historians, particularly those who uh, have an anti-Christian bias, they, they try to uh, develop theories that would render these kinds of historical statements useless or meaningless or perhaps that they were fiction, that they were made up. But it's interesting, in 1935, an archaeologist by the name of uh, J.L. Starkey found a, seri a series of clay pots. They were known as the Lakish Letters. The Lakish Letters, discovered in 1935. These clay pots contained on them letters, inscriptions, from the Jewish people in and around the town of Lakish. Lakish, just north of Jerusalem, was a town that was being attacked by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And the general at the time in the town near Lachish was writing inscriptions on the pots and giving them to couriers that the couriers would go out to other generals in the field of the, the, the Jewish generals and say, how's it going at your fort? How's it going at your post? In one of the letters, in letter 4 of the Lachish letters, it, it, uh, the, the letter reads this, from a Jew, one Jewish general to another Jewish general. May God, Yahweh, cause my Lord to hear this very day tidings of good. My Lord be appraised, apprised that we are watching for the fire signals of Lachish because according to all the signs which my Lord has given, because we cannot see Azekah. You say, well, what is he speaking about? What is he, what is he talking about? 
the commander in the town near Lachish, is writing an inscription on this pot and sending it to Lachish, the commander of the Jewish post is sending out this pot through a courier and he's saying to this other general, he's saying, I've been looking for fire signals, smoke signals, literally. I've been looking for signals in the various posts across the land as to what I should do in the wake of King Nebuchadnezzar's coming. And I tell you, General in Lachish, I can no longer see the signals coming from the fort in Azekah. All was quiet in Azekah. No smoke commands. No fire commands. Why? Because King Nebuchadnezzar's army had decimated it. And this feeble Jewish general was sending final words saying, in the town north of me, it's gone quiet. I don't know what's coming, but I fear the worst. I hope there's tidings of of good, but I fear of what is about to come. The historical accuracy of the books of Kings, of Chronicles, and others are precise. And they are verified by archaeology. And so we come now to that final battle when Nebuchadnezzar enters Jerusalem for that final time. And this is where we pick up the story in 2 Kings 25. We finish with this. Then the city wall was broken through and all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans or the Babylonians were still encamped all around against the city. And the king, this is Zedekiah, the final king of Judah, and the king went by way of the plain. He tried to escape. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and they brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah and they pronounced judgment on him. And look what they did. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They took his family. They put his family in front of him. And King Zebuchadnezzar and his army slaughtered Zedekiah's sons. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They plucked out the eyes of Zedekiah. They bound him with bronze fetters and took him to Babylon. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Zebuzaradan, the, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the temple, And the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard, they broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Zebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon, to the king of Babylon, with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. Boy, sounds fun, huh? Decimated. As we begin the book of Daniel, we begin a book in which the Jewish people were decimated. Jerusalem was razed. The temple burned. The walls torn down. The Jewish people, like their ancestors a millennia ago in Egypt were now slaves 
again. But while all hope seemed lost, the Lord God was doing a work in and through the Jewish people in the land of Babylon. Yes, they were physically slaves in Babylon, but the bonds of spiritual slavery were beginning to loosen. The Spirit of God began to open their eyes to their idolatry, to their former wickedness. And they began listening again to the great prophets of God. There was, uh, there was if you were, a, a spiritual awakening that was beginning to take a foot in the land of Babylon. And in this spiritual awakening, they, they, they started to listen again to the voice of the prophets. They read again from the book of Isaiah. They, they saw Jeremiah's prophecies and began to refresh their memory. They looked as Ezekiel preached in the land of Babylon and they started listening to this, to this pastor, if you will, who was preaching to them in captivity to the community of the Jews. And they listened to Habakkuk and others at that time who, who wrote at that time. The last three, save Isaiah, the, the, the three that are listed up there except for Isaiah were all contemporaries of Daniel. All of their writings contemporary with that period of time. There was a spiritual awakening that was taking place in the midst of slavery. And just like Pastor Rye shared with us, there's a spiritual awakening taking place in his school in the midst of a culture in Nepal in which these children are just like slaves. And yet in the midst of their slavery, God is lifting them up. He is giving them spiritual refreshment and awakening. They began to realize why they were in this position. They began to recall what it was that put them into this great predicament. They remembered the words of Jeremiah the prophet. In Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah had warned them of this. And this is what he said in chapter 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you've not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And notice this in verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Speaking mainly of the kingdom of Judah. He says, because of your wickedness, you are going to be exiled. You're going to be taken captive for 70 years. And the Jewish people in Babylon began to refresh themselves with that message and remind themselves, this is why we are in this time of suffering. But they also knew that the time of their captivity would come to an end. In the very next verse, Jeremiah writes this, Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. The Lord, through Jeremiah, says 70 years 
70 years of captivity, 70 years of exile, and when those years are up, I will restore to Israel what she has lost. I will restore to the Jewish people what they have lost. They will be able to go from Babylon and go back to Jerusalem to go back and rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple, to begin again as the people of God. This was also promised in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah writes this in chapter 44, the Lord who says of Cyrus, Cyrus was the the later coming king of Persia, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Isaiah spoke of a man, King Cyrus of Persia, who would one day come up against the kingdom of Babylon and crush it. And look look upon the Jewish people and say, you can go home. You can go home. Scripture predicts this. Scripture predicted the captivity. It it predicted the restoration. It predicted what Nebuchadnezzar would do and the Babylonian kings, and it predicted what King Cyrus would do of Persia in restoring hope. This was a turning point. The book of Daniel, as we begin it, is a turning point in the history of the Jewish people. And like the time of Moses and the Exodus, it was a time of great spiritual awakening for Israel. A time of repentance. A time of returning to the worship of the Lord God. It was in this time, did you know this? It was at this time in Babylon that synagogues were built for the first time ever. Previously, the Jews had the temple and they, all of them would go and make pilgrimage to the temple and the temple alone. There was no synagogues in the local communities. It was only in exile that these small local communities were being formed and fostered a measure of spiritual growth and development in their community. They didn't have a temple, so they started local churches, just like this local church. Only they called them synagogues. They also um, began to, again, get refreshed in the voice of the prophets. They read again Isaiah, Jeremiah. They heard from Ezekiel and from Habakkuk. They began to, to get a picture again of the law of God, of the prophets, and, and scribes. This is when the time of the scribes rose up. Men would start copying again the Scriptures and distributing them for later publication. This was a time in which the Scriptures were being revived and, and, and recovered and refreshed. They were meeting in synagogues. The sacred writings were being reread. The scribal activities were increasing glimmers of hope were beginning to emerge in Babylon among the Jews. Listening afresh to the Lord their God, to His teachers among them. Ezekiel preached to them. Habakkuk preached to them. And rumor had it, in the Jewish communities, rumor had it that even King Nebuchadnezzar was appointing a few select Jewish men to come in t- into his administration. Think about this. The, the, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had destroyed Jerusalem, who had crushed the Jews, rumor had it that he was actually appointing some of the Jews, some of his slaves, to come into his administration to be trained as wise men and to advise him in matters of culture, 
religion, public policy. You say, why would he do that? Why would a man who crushed another people group appoint some of those same people, those slaves, to serve, if you will, in his palace? We read about these men in Daniel, beginning in verse 3. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had an ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Verse 6, Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names and he gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Stop and think about this for a moment. A king, a pagan king, conquers another land, takes them slave, like slaves into Babylon, hooks one of their kings and drags him by the lips into Babylon. And that same king looks upon those slaves and selects some of them to be trained as wise men in his administration, in his palace doesn't sound like something that would happen under normal circumstances, does it? It's the hand of God. It's the hand of God. No nation conquers another nation and then rises up those slaves to positions of high leadership. This was the hand of God upon the Jewish people, giving them opportunity to influence one of the most pagan kings in human history. What great confidence... This must have given the Jewish people to know that men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been appointed to be their advocates, to lobby, if you will, before the king on behalf of the Jewish people. To know that even in their captivity, God had permitted some of the most gifted men to become persons of influence before the king. And Daniel, as we begin this book, Daniel was the most gifted one of all. We know him as a prophet. But equally so, and if not more so, Daniel rose to become a governing official in both the nations of Babylon and later in Persia. And like Moses and, and Joseph before him, he found, uh, who, who, you know, Moses and Joseph, they found favor before Pharaoh and served before Pharaoh in Egypt. So also Daniel gained the trust of King Nebuchadnezzar and later on of the other kings, King Belshazzar, Darius the Mede, and later even another king, Cyrus of Persia. Daniel, through two different nations, had opportunity to have a position of influence in those nations. He's a remarkable man. We underestimate the, the power and the influence how much the hand of God was upon this man. And here in the book of Daniel, we are going to get a small taste of his magnificent life and prophetic utterances. You know, there's, there's so much that can be said of this book, 
But I wanted to share with you a few quotes from some of the great men of God who have, who have studied it much longer than I. And I just wanted you to get a taste of what they have said about this great book. John Walford says this, Daniel is essential to the structure of prophecy and is the key to the entire Old Testament prophetic revelation. John Walford, one of the greatest professors of, of all time from Dallas Theological Seminary, he says, it is the key to all of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. Let's go to the next one. Gleason Archer writes, in the New Testament prophecy, Daniel is referred to more than any other Old Testament book. Moreover, it contains more fulfilled prophecies than any other book in the Bible. In all of our Old New Testament, Daniel's prophecies are cited most often. And in the book of Daniel, we find the greatest of fulfilled prophecies in all of Scripture. Finally, uh, Charles Feinberg writes, the book of Daniel is unquestionably the key to all biblical prophecy. Passages like Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, and the book of Revelation are unintelligible without a knowledge of the book of Daniel. Unintelligible. You cannot understand these other passages in the New Testament if you do not understand the book of Daniel. That's quite a statement. It's quite a statement. We're going to see a bunch of themes in this series in Daniel. And I want you, I'm going to go rapid fire here, so if you've got your pen out on your outline, you might need to go fast. Some themes that we're going to see. We're going to see the sovereignty of God. God is in control. God is in control over kings. He's in control over Israel. He's in control over the nations. The sovereignty of God. Secondly, we're going to see the power of prayer. You're going to see prayer like never before. Daniel praying and receiving deliverance from God. And that brings me to the third one. Miraculous deliverances. Daniel in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. You are going to see miracles like never before. Amazing works of God. Fourth, God's grace toward Jew and Gentile. Not only is Daniel a book about the Jewish people and about His grace upon them in the midst of captivity, but it's about His grace toward Babylon and even toward King Nebuchadnezzar, which you will see he responds to the God of Israel for a time of his life. And even King Cyrus later on of Persia. Fifth, you're going to see the four great world empires prophesied about by Daniel. These are called the times of the Gentiles. And Daniel is going to speak to us about the four great kingdoms of the world. And we're going to learn about what that means to what that means that we're in the times of the Gentiles. In fact, the times of the Gentiles begins with the book of Daniel. It begins with the destruction of Jerusalem. And we, you and I are still in the times of the Gentiles right now. Six. Daniel will speak of the Antichrist in the last days. Uh, we're going to come to some very controversial scriptures toward the end of Daniel. Uh, many Bible scholars are going to take different positions on it. Uh, I'm going to take a position that says that Daniel is in fact speaking of the final ruler of the world. A final resurrected uh, Roman Empire, if you will. And Daniel is going to speak about this one world ruler and of his last days. Seven. The coming restoration of Israel. Daniel's going to talk about how Israel went to captivity in Babylon, but, but she will be restored. She will be restored. And you and I are witnesses now, already, of a portion of that restoration. 
The nation of Israel is in her land. And, and just as Ezekiel said, there would, you know, there would be dry bones in the land. Right now, the nation of Israel is largely uh, a Jewish nation that, that does not recognize Jesus as Messiah. Dry bones in the land, Ezekiel called it. But they're going to be, uh, they're going to be made alive again. And Daniel speaks of that. Finally, the eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom. Daniel will speak of our Lord's return and of the eternal kingdom that is coming. Uh, that, that all those who believe in Jesus Christ will be participants in on that great and final day. Friends, given the great importance of this book, is it not surprising that the enemy would seek to keep us from it. I don't find it surprising that the last 48 hours of my home was chaos, I tell you. Chaos in my home. The enemy does not want us in this book. And you know what else? The enemy doesn't want you to have confidence in this book. In fact, of all the books in the Old Testament, few books have received more scrutiny from, um, from both Christian uh, Christian and pagan people questioning the authenticity of the book of Daniel, uh, it is one of the most significantly opposed Old Testament books. One of the most significantly opposed Old Testament books. There is so much talk of questioning its authorship, questioning its date, questioning its theology. Um, it's remarkable. And uh, these questions began uh, with, with a... Uh, a book by uh, a man by the name of uh, Por Porphyry. Excuse me. Let me get it right here. I'm trying to uh, say it right. Yeah, Porphyry. Uh, this was a man who lived in the late 3rd century A.D. after Christ. And Porphyry was not a Christian. He was a pagan Roman philosopher. And uh, Porphyry, essentially his argument, when he came to the book of Daniel, even though he wasn't a believer, he wrote a book... Uh, he kind of tipped his hand a little bit because he named the book Against the Christians. So the Christians kind of knew what he was going to write about. Um, but Porphyry came to the book of Daniel and he essentially made this argument about the book. Daniel's prophecy is far too detailed and accurate. Surely no one could speak of future events with such precision. Porphyry looked at the book of Daniel and what he saw in it, quite frankly, was masterful accuracy in, in, in detail in its recounting of future events. And Porphyry, being in the third century, late third century, he was able to look back uh, on some of the claims of the book of Daniel and see fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment. And being a pagan, he looked upon all these fulfillments and thought to himself, well, surely that means that Daniel, the book of Daniel, was written after all of these fulfillments. Surely no man could have accurately predicted all of these things and had that much precision in it. Again, Porphyry, not a Christian, pagan philosopher, uh, and his argument was simple. It's far too detailed. No one could speak with such precision. Thankfully, the, the early Christians especially a man by the name of Jerome, an early church father, they responded forcefully to Porphyry's argument. 
They responded forcefully in defense of the book of Daniel. So strong was their defense that Porphyry's argument vanished from existence only to be resurrected some 1,500 years later in the age of the Enlightenment. In the 18th century, a German scholar by the name of Johann David Michaelis resurrected Porphyry's argument. There was 1,500 years of silence not questioning Daniel's authorship or the dating of it. And then, 1,500 years after Porphyry, Michaelis came along, a German scholar who was a rationalist, who was a deist. Um, Like Thomas Jefferson after him, our uh, third uh, president, and certainly a man of great influence in America, but just like Thomas Jefferson, um, Michaelis, this German scholar, was a man who, as a deist, would cross out every miracle and every predictive prophecy in the Bible. Did you know Jefferson did that? There's what's called the Jefferson Bible. And Thomas Jefferson, though a deist, though he believed in God, he would literally cross out any miracle or any predictive prophecy because he was a rationalist. He thought there's no way a man could know the future. There's no way that miracles can occur. Porphyry believed that back in the late 3rd century. Michaelis of Germany believed that in the 18th century in the age of enlightenment, so-called enlightenment. Thomas Jefferson after him, and many scholars after them. Today, you might be wondering, why, why do I spend so much time on this? Well, today, Christian scholars disagree. They do. On the authorship and on the dating of Daniel. Traditional scholars believe that Daniel wrote the book, that he wrote it in the 6th century B.C. while in Babylon. But other, um, others, other scholars, even Christian ones at times, uh, side with the ideas of Porphyry and Michaelis of Germany. I'm, I'm becoming very familiar with the arguments on both sides. And though I'm certainly not a scholar, I find the traditional arguments to be much, much stronger than those of the opposition. And let me say this. I don't find it happenstance. I don't find it happenstance that arguments against the authenticity of Daniel were first leveled by a non-Christian pagan man. That's significant. A non-Christian pagan was the first to challenge the authorship and the dating of Daniel. And I also don't find it significant that 1,500 years went by before someone came along, a man who crossed out miracles and crossed out prophecy, and brought it up again. These are origins of an argument that come from the enemy. And it's frustrating to me that some modern day Christian scholars subscribe to arguments that originated in paganism, that originate in deism, that originate in a so-called age of enlightenment. There are good reasons, very good reasons, to believe that Daniel was in fact the author of this book. And that he wrote it from Babylon in the 6th century B.C. I want to leave us today with four great arguments to take with you. First, the Lord preserved Daniel amidst incredible obstacles, solidifying him as a prophet of God. Remember, captured as a slave, Daniel was among the Jews who were selected to go to the king's court. Amazing! When Persia... When King Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon, 
rather than re-enslaving Daniel, he was retained as an advisor to King Darius the Mede. Amazing. He survived overnight in a lion's den, the Scriptures recall. The Lord's preservation of this man is astounding. Secondly, this is so very important, Daniel rose to prominence in Babylon precisely because of his precision in prophecy. Lots of P's there. Let me say that ten times fast. Daniel rose to prominence in Babylon precisely because of his precision in prophecy. He alone is the man who could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. He alone was the man who could look at the writing on the wall before King Belshazzar and realize what it, was, what it meant. It was his precision in prophecy that took a man who should have been a slave and instead elevated him to the highest palace court in the land. Why would we wonder that God could not give him further precision? The reason you read this book is because the man was astoundingly influential in Babylon. Third, so immediately significant was Daniel's life that he was included among the likes of Noah and Job by his contemporary, the prophet Ezekiel. If you read Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel, who was contemporary with Daniel, they, were, they, they may not have known each other, they may not have greeted each other, but they knew of each other, okay? Ezekiel was so impacted by Daniel that as he preached and teached in the synagogues in Babylon before the Jewish people, he named Daniel among the likes of Noah and Job as, some of the most, as one of the most righteous men of all. And guess what? Ezekiel wrote before Daniel. Before Daniel even composed this book. Ezekiel said to the people, you've got to pay attention to this guy. This guy is phenomenal. He is a man of God. Listen to what he says. Ezekiel solidifies Daniel's place as an extraordinary man of God. And fourth and finally, and perhaps most significantly, even Jesus identified Daniel as the very man who prophesied of future events with great precision. I emphasize future events. When Jesus, in Matthew 24, when He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the high place, let, you, let yourselves run to the mountains. When Jesus spoke those words in Matthew chapter 24 and in Mark 13, He was quoting Daniel and speaking about an event that was yet future. Porphyry, Michaelis, and others, they look at Daniel's words and say, oh, that already happened. That already occurred. That was, uh, uh, that was totally and utterly fulfilled by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And it's not going to happen again. Jesus says, no. Daniel spoke of this abomination of desolation, this, this final act, if you will, by Antichrist in the temple of God and Jesus said, it's still future. It hasn't happened yet. It's coming. And Daniel has predicted it. This book, friends, is an authentic book. It is written by a man of God. An unbelievably influential man of God. 
It was written at a time of captivity, of slavery. And amidst extraordinary circumstances, Daniel stood up on behalf of the Lord God and he preached and teached the Gospel of God. He, he encouraged the Jewish people. He gave wisdom to the king of Babylon, to the king of, of the Medes and of Persia. He's a man of extraordinary influence. And as we hear from him in this series, we're going to hear a lot of history and we're going to hear a lot of prophecy. And we are going to learn a great deal about Daniel's contribution to our Christian faith. The history and significance of the person of Daniel is perhaps beyond the significance of any other man who lived save Jesus Christ. He was an extraordinary man and we're going to have a great time studying this book. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, I just thank You, Lord, for the privilege to preach and teach Your Word. God, it is our hope that this book would be extraordinary in our lives. That it would awaken us and, and refresh us, Lord, to what You have for us today. God, we look around our world and we see great chaos. We see chaos in places like Israel in the Middle East where Your Word tells us the end of all things is going to happen there. And God, we wonder aloud is this the time of the end? Is this the time, Lord, when You will finally send Your Son back and bring restoration to this universe? God, we wonder aloud what You are doing in the world. And we look intently at the book of Daniel for some answers. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and guide us through this study. Help us to be careful with Your Word. Help us to be assured of its truth, of its authenticity, of its significance in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.